Hi everyone, this is Steve Carroll, and this is the Invasive Podcast. Today's episode is part two on opioid overdose by Dr. Shana Gifford. In this episode, she's going to talk about a differential diagnosis for those altered patients in case they don't respond to naloxone, some special situations such as methadone overdoses, how to properly disposition these patients, how to briefly and quickly screen for opioid abuse in the ED, and how to be prescribed responsibly. After the episode, I'll come back on to emphasize a few points. One thing to clarify, towards the end of the episode, Dr. Gifford talks about limiting opioids to 60 milligrams of morphine, no more than twice a day. That's in reference to morphine equivalents, which I'll talk a little more about at the end of the podcast. With that said, let's get started with Dr. Shana Gifford on opioid overdose management and treatment, part two. Welcome back to part two of prescription opioid overdoses on EMBASIC. In part one, we went over the problem that we currently have going on in this country with the opioid epidemic. We talked about a prototypical patient who ODs and a presentation. We went over the routes of administration and dosing of Narcan for either the code or the nice wake-up. Using this information, by the time we finished the initial assessment and stabilization of our 47-year-old female patient that we started running through in part one, we'll know a lot more about opioids and the general workup of a patient like this. So let's go back to our patient. When last we saw her, she was on a Narcan Neb at two milligrams per milliliter. Her vitals, by the way, in the department when she first came in, just a quick review, her heart rate was 57, respiratory rate 7, BP 109 over 70, GCS of 8. With the administration of the two milligrams by Neb in the ED, her vital signs improved. She's satting now over 94, she's in a regular sinus rhythm, and her respiratory rate is up to 10. Her mental status hasn't quite improved yet, but that doesn't stop us from beginning our initial assessment. During the assessment, even if we suspected opioid OD due to the history, the presentation, and the response to Narcan, we keep all the usual AMS differentials in mind. No one is ever just drunk or just OD'd until proven otherwise. The way that we assure ourselves that this is just an overdose is to run through the differential before finally concluding that none of the other possible etiologies fit. And there's a great flowchart from Rosen's in the show notes. Once we've tackled the ABCs like we have with this lady, given Narcan and seen an improvement in vital signs, we can start asking questions like, one, are there other neurologic findings that might give us additional pause? Additional causes for concern would include if her pupils were fixed. They often are in opioid ID, but also, in addition to being fixed, are there other pathologic eye movements? Opioid OD causes meiosis, but it shouldn't be causing other pathological eye movements. If there are, do we suspect anything else? Do we suspect a neurologic cause? Do we have a reason to suspect a mass effect in this patient? Is she very hypo or hypertensive? as she might be if there's mass effect. Are there signs of brainstem suppression? Does this patient need a neurosurge team? If not, we move on to asking, are there signs of trauma? So if there's no other neurologic findings of concern, we ask, is there trauma? Is there major blood loss? We've checked her eyes. We've looked for signs of posturing. Now we check her head to toe for trauma. No signs of trauma, no signs of major blood loss. Okay, next question. Is there any reason to suspect infection? Does she have a high fever or a nasty-looking wound? Don't forget to strip and flip the patient. The wounds can be anywhere. No, nope, no signs of wounds. She's not attacking a fever. So, good. 
we've ruled out briefly those three major other causes for altered mental status. We all know there are many, many, many causes potentially, but in the main, major trauma, infection, and impending herniation are something, are the brief, short, short version of the things that we're worried about at this very moment. The patient has come around while we were doing our assessment, and she's given us a story. The story is that she just got her prescription for oxycodone refilled, and she may have taken too many. Okay, so I've got a patient who was brought in down. Now she's endorsing the fact that she may have OD'd on her prescription opioid at home. What kind of workup do we do for this patient? We do a good history, including screening for depression, suicidal ideation, and other drugs. She just got an opioid prescription. Did she also get a benzo prescription to help her with her anxiety? Did she get something to help her sleep? Did she start taking a vitamin? Anything that might have interfered with the normal expected behavior of her drug refill. She gets a complete physical exam, including neuro exam. We continue to keep an eye on her respiratory status. She may be talking, but she also very well may be bradypneic. If she's still breathing less than 12 times a minute, she might need more Narcan or a Narcan infusion, or maybe even to be bagged. If she's breathing, she's breathing in the 12 to 20 range. So we can contemplate doing some more for her. What more would we do? Well, now that we've done our physical and we've done our history, we could think about labs. Do we order any? According to Rosen's, tox screens are often very expensive and their use, quote, is not warranted in the most routine drug overdoses, end quote. We, meaning Dr. Garcia, Dr. Carroll, and I, agree with that to a large extent. If someone presents with classic signs and symptoms of opioid use and their decreased mental state resolves completely with Narcan administration and they deny other drugs, then a full tox screen is probably not necessary. While we're here, let's ask the question, when is a full tox screen necessary? When is it most useful? The answer is a full tox screen is most useful in patients who either are presenting with their first psychotic episode or are critically ill for an unknown reason when identification of an otherwise unsuspected toxin may change management. That's it. I'll say it again. Full tox screen most useful in patients who are presenting with their first psychotic episode are critically ill, we don't know why, and locating a toxin might change our management of that patient. Otherwise, skip the tox screen, according to Rosen's. This patient's story is consistent with her presentation. Her symptoms have completely resolved post-Narcan administration, so no labs are warranted. Before we move on, another quick word about Narcan, speaking of which. In these cases, we're always in a rush to give it, and with very good reason. At the same time, we need to bear in mind that Narcan itself is not a risk-free maneuver. Caution should be exercised when administering naloxone to habitual users as it may precipitate withdrawal with hypertension and tachycardia and violent behavior. It may reverse the altered mental status and respiratory depression associated with the opioid overdose, but it doesn't always reverse the hypotension. So we give our Narcan, but it doesn't let us fire and forget. We have to keep this patient for a while, even if they're endorsing nothing else, have no complaints, and their vital signs are completely baseline. We have to keep them and keep an eye on them for signs that may come later as their typical opioid dose abates. But how long do we keep them? Post-opioid overdose observation times depend on what they took, 
how much they took, and when they took it. So how long we keep a patient, like our 47-year-old lady, who is now awake, breathing at 14 times a minute, has a GCS of 15 and no significant findings on physical exam, and no complaints? Well, we'll keep her if she wants to stay, and that's an important point. Some patients will want to leave AMA. And if there's truly no physical findings and they have denied suicidal ideation, they have a right to leave. We discharge them AMA. If they're willing to stay, let's say our patient is, her observation time will depend on what caused the OD. In her case, it was a short-acting opioid. So the observation time is four to six hours after the last Narcan dose. Four to six hours after the last Narcan dose for a short-acting opioid. If it was a long-acting opioid, methadone or fentanyl, the observation time is eight hours. Eight hours from the last Narcan dose, depending on if they took a long or short-acting opioid. So that's it. That's the observation time. Before we move on to dyspoem, we should take a moment to talk about methadone. The uh, paradigm exemplar of the long-acting opioid, methadone is a beast all its own. Like heroin, it's an opioid receptor agonist comes in tablets and syrup. It's a synthetic that's been engineered to be very long-acting. So while heroin has a half-life of 30 minutes and fast on, fast off, methadone lives at the other end of the spectrum with a huge half-life and a huge range of half-lives, anywhere from 15 to 40 hours. The average half-life of methadone is about 25 hours, so a day. One dose of methadone, one day of half-life. Peak plasma concentrations are usually seen about 15 hours after tablet ingestion. And it's a potent analgesic. Methadone has kind of a bad rap. Um, in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. For 45 years, methadone maintenance therapy has been the standard of care for former heroin users attempting to abstain from their habit. Nearly 50 years of helping people stay clean. Opioid-dependent patients who are enrolled in methadone maintenance therapy have a third the mortality incidence of those who are not. So MMT is very effective. People in MMT have a higher quality of life. They earn more money and they contract fewer infectious diseases. So we like MMT. The reason we tend not to like it has to do with the fact that the rise of MMT has occurred simultaneously with the rise in methadone toxicity. The numbers make it clear that MMT isn't really the problem here. Methadone is such a long-acting mu receptor agonist that it sort of inhibits the heroin type high. It hangs out for so long that if you want to get high, you have to do a lot of other drugs to get around the methadone or take a huge dose. Most of the recent trend in methadone toxicity appears to be coming from the tendency to prescribe methadone for pain. A 2012 paper in JAMA showed that methadone was linked to 30% of all prescription painkiller deaths in 2009. Methadone caused 30% of them. That's really impressive, given that methadone only constitutes 2% of the prescribed painkillers, at least in that year. 2% cost 30% of the mortality. The peak analgesia and the peak respiratory suppression in methadone don't line up. So it, it takes a long time to titrate methadone to a continuous effective pain relief. And patients switching to methadone from, say, morphine get their expected 48 hours of analgesia from the methadone. But then the analgesia wears off. However, the methadone, as we know, is still on board, possibly for another 32 hours. 
but they don't know that. You know, they're used to their analgesia, and as it wears off, they take another dose. And that's why it's in the first two weeks of starting therapy that we see a lot of the morbidity and mortality from methadone. It's that initial exposure or re-exposure where the titration to pain relief is not quite right. I also read a paper and stated that chronic users retain uh, methadone in their livers and can have really, really, really long durations of actions and, and plasma concentrations. But I think the point is this, that the half-life of methadone is so all over the place that even for habitual users, the analgesia doesn't always match up well with what you were expecting. To make matters worse, the drug is so old that it's really cheap. So insurance companies have listed methadone as preferred. Primary care doctors are being encouraged to use it, but as we just discussed, it's a very hard drug to use correctly. You need baseline EKGs, follow-up EKGs, medication reconciliation, and very, very, very close monitoring. You need to titrate to that effective dose in that first two weeks. When you don't get your initial and follow-up EKGs, your med reconciliation, and you are not monitored very closely, that's when the morbidity and mortality from methadone occurs. We see that morbidity and mortality in the ED as dose-related respiratory depression, QT prolongation, and torsades. There are numerous case studies of other strange things happening due to methadone. Um, if you're interested, you'll see them. But mostly what we're seeing is dose-related respiratory depression, QT prolongation, and torsades. The risk factors for methadone toxicity include patients who recently began therapy, Patients on high doses, that's more than 80 milligrams a day. Having any other drug on board that interferes with the cytochrome P450 system or in and of itself causes prolonged QT because methadone does that too. Of course, patients with underlying long QT syndrome at baseline are at risk. And the syrup form of methadone seems to be far more dangerous than the tablet form, probably due to poor dosing. So... What do you do? Methadone toxicity workup. If a patient on methadone presents with dizziness, weakness, syncope, or altered mental status, throw on that 12-lead ASAP. Look for co-ingestants, multiple prescriptions, and be extra suspicious if the story reveal reveals that the methadone therapy is less than two weeks old. They still haven't titrated to the correct dose. Expect apnea in methadone toxicity patients and get entitled CO2 monitoring. Start your Narcan drip as soon as you have your effective dose. The Narcan IV infusion again, dosing two-thirds of the nice wake-up call, aka the effective dose, per hour plus half the initial wake-up dose as a bolus, 15 minutes after you start that infusion. Expect that you'll be admitting this patient to the ICU. He or she will need careful, continuous monitoring as the methadone gets slowly metabolized over the next, it could be 40 hours. And that's it for methadone. So how long do we observe our patient, our 47-year-old lady? Well, she was on an immediate release form of oxy, so we've observed her now for four hours after her last Narcan dose by Neb, and everything looks good. So we can start to consider Dispo. And there's a, a great chart in the show notes that basically walks you through the time and situations how and when and where you dispo these patients. The disposition of the opioid OD patient after the 46-hour window, assuming they took a short acting. Now, in theory, according to Rosen's, a patient with altered mental status, secondary to recreational 
accidental drug use or alcohol OD can be discharged once their mental status returns to baseline. But is that it? Is clinical sobriety a ticket to walk out the door? What we want is, of course, these people to walk out the door. So how do we maximize the odds? Well, we've got them for at least four hours. We may as well make the most of it. When it comes to drug OD of any kind, we must talk to the patient. That is, perhaps after bringing them around, the single best thing we can do for them. We call social services. Social services offers them whatever they have to offer. We document the services that they have offered and that the patient has accepted. And, you know, what services, for example? Well, in our case, the patient insists that the OD is accidental, but it still happened. So maybe she needs welfare checks. Maybe she needs more assistance at home in general, help taking her pills with dosing, with time. Maybe she needs an extended release formulation so she's not constantly taking pills and doesn't get confused. We can try to get her or at least discuss these things with her and her PCP while she's in the ED. We have her for a good chunk of our shift. Let's make the most of it. We can also consider a prescription for Narcan. That's one of the four CDC recommendations when it comes to addressing this epidemic. We'll get to that in a little while. But before we dive into the CDC guidelines, here's a rapid review of what we've covered so far since part one. Since part one, we've covered that drug OD is the leading cause of injury death in the U.S. and more than half of these are due to opioids. Most of these opioids are prescribed. The highest risk population or the classic patient for the opioid OD is 45 to 54 and 55 to 64, female slightly higher than male, the history of abuse, and polypharmacy. Your initial workup, history, and physical exam will allow you to differentiate between altered mental status from opioid OD and other etiologies that mimic opioid OD. Very quickly and very broadly, these are trauma, infection, and toxic metabolic issues. Toxic metabolic issues besides or in addition to opioids. The classic presentation is respiratory and CNS depression, probably with meiosis, if it wasn't a synthetic. Variations exist, but whatever the etiology of the CNS depression and respiratory depression, ABCs always come first. Monitoring good oxygenation and good ventilation. Get a jaw thrust going. After that, move to the Narcan. If it's not a code situation, dose Narcan nicely. Start at 0.1 milligrams IM, IV, or IO. Slow IVP, 1 to 2 mils of 0.04 milligrams per mil if they're breathing at all. IN, 1 mil up the nose, 1 nair at a time. You can wait a couple minutes in between to see if there's been any good response before giving the second dose. That's good for any patient. Nebulizing your patient if they're breathing more than six times a minute. Narcan at two milligrams in three milliliters normal saline. That's, a, that's the Narcan wake-up methods. With all these methods, wait a few minutes for a response to increase or repeat the dose to a max of 10 with the goals of getting the patient to have a good respiratory effort, to be able to tell you the story, and to not induce withdrawal. If the story is that methadone was involved, start an Arcan infusion at two-thirds the effective wake-up dose and expect an ICU admission. For short-acting opioids, after you've resuscitated the patient to a normal GCS and vital signs, they'll need to be observed for four to six hours after their last Narcan dose. 
Well, we've got them in the ED. Let's make the most of our time. Call social services, educate them, get them a take-home naloxone script, and try to recruit them to our side. That being the side of keeping them alive and actually fixing what's wrong with them, rather than constantly throwing the opioids at the problem. The story we give them as we're trying to recruit them, well, the short version, is that chronic opioid therapy basically helps no one who stands any chance of getting better. If they think they want to get better and they want to get better, chronic opioid therapy is not the way. We're going to focus on function with them rather than focusing on taking away pain. So it's all about what they can do and what they feel like they can't do and what needs to happen for them to regain the function they need. Set goals and expectations appropriately. The pain may always be there, but we're going to try to manage it so that your lifestyle can be as close to what you need it to be as possible. That's the story we give them. The story we give ourselves, the short version, is that let's not start opioids on people if there's any other alternative. Let's never start them without a checklist, a plan, and a lot of education. I know it's a lot, but it's the safe way to go. And speaking of which, let's never prescribe doses higher than 60 milligrams. The literature shows that people will either respond to 60 BID or they probably won't respond to any dose, assuming it's non-cancer pain. So let's play it safe. Not start them if we can. If we're going to start them, use a checklist and a plan and never give more than 60 BID. Now, onto the CDC recommendations. There's only basically two that I'm going to talk about. Number one, protect people with opioid use disorder. Give them Narcan to go. Narcan in the doggy bag. The quote is, expand access and use of naloxone, a critical drug that can reverse the symptoms of an opioid overdose and save lives. I've read some papers about how well it's working, the results are mixed, but since there is really no harm, we may as well take the CDC up on this recommendation. Recommendation number two, eliminate initiation into opioid misuse and addiction by not prescribing it if you can. Opioid pain relievers, according to the CDC, prescribing has quadrupled since 1999. Providing healthcare professionals with additional tools and information, including safer guidelines for prescribing these drugs, can help them make more informed prescribing decisions. All right, both of these sound great. Number two sounds kind of tricky because we're under a lot of pressure to relieve pain and get people going. So what tools are they talking about? What information can help inform our opioid prescribing practices? Well, the FDA came up with a little bit with four suggestions. Suggestion number one from the FDA, any patient who gets an opioid prescription gets an additional prescription for education. So here's your hydrocodone and here's your education. Well, what's the message that we should focus on with that education? We're focusing on these. One, what opioids are really for short-term temporary pain relief as you heal and regain function. How to use them properly. The risks of using them properly and improperly. Use them improperly, you could kill yourself. Using them properly, you could still end up with a terrible case of constipation. Here's your stool softener prescription. How to properly store and dispose of them. This is a great chance to warn people not to leave their prescriptions around where they can be accidentally or intentionally ingested by anyone else. I'm not talking about just pills. There have been more than two dozen cases of kids being exposed to fentanyl patches. Ten of these were fatal. So that's what we do. We warn our patients, this is what it's for. This is how to use it. This is what will happen if you use it right and if you use it wrong. 
and this is how to store them and dispose of them when you're finished. That was suggestion one. Suggestion two, we refocus our prescribing practices away from subjective pain. That's something we talked about. The patient may say they have 10 out of 10 pain, but the question is not, what is your pain? The question is, what can you no longer do because of your pain? That answer is the one which will determine if opioids of any kind are warranted. That was two. Suggestion three, use a summary checklist when prescribing opioids. We have a great one for you in the show notes. It can help you make sure that you've dotted your um, opioid eyes and crossed your therapeutic Ds, that you've checked for pain and function, you've gone over the history of substance abuse, you've checked for suicidal ideation, depression, you've documented all current scripts, noted all drugs with potential for use and abuse, noted all drugs with potential um, for CYP450 interference, you've assessed for the side effects of opioids, does the patient already have constipation or sleep apnea or coordination impairment with driving? All that is in the checklist. Suggestion number four, stay on top of the latest guidelines for opioid use, risk mitigation, prescribing practices, etc. Okay, staying on top of guidelines. What are these guidelines? Who makes them and where can we get them? The answer is everyone and everywhere. Nationally, they're available at the National Guidelines Clearinghouse website. They're available at the state level in many states. If not, they're available from basically every major medical association. For example, the practice guidelines for chronic pain management, an updated report by the American Society of Anesthesiologists, Task Force on Chronic Pain Management, and so on and so on. Every major society will have one for you. You and your colleagues, check them out, choose one or more, and agree. Evaluate how well they're serving you after you've agreed and tried them, and then choose your guidelines based on that. That's always an option. These guidelines are just there to help you steer your, steer your practice. They can help you define your maximum daily dose limits for every kind of opioid in your arsenal. The effects, as we know, good and bad of opioids are almost entirely dose-related. And for that reason, when you look at the guidelines, you'll notice that they tend to point to doses as the chief thing to fo focus on. So, for example, um, the Washington State Opioid Dosing Guidelines say that for more than 100 um, morphine equivalents a day, there's an associated nine-fold increased risk of overdose. And so for that reason, the Washington State Opioid Dosing Guidelines recommend limiting daily doses to 120 milligrams of morphine without consultation from a pain specialist. If the patient needs more than that, they have to go see a pain specialist, and that sounds like a great idea to me. In addition to looking up and knowing the prescribing guidelines, we can earn free CME that focuses on risk evaluation and mitigation strategies for opioids. We need these anyway. There's a link in the show notes. So again, quick review. Here's what the CDC and the FDA have had to say so far, the short version, about opioids. One, protect opioid users. Give them a naloxone take-home. Two, prevent misuse. Don't give the scripts if you can avoid it. Do give education. Tell people what opioids are really for how to use them properly, the risks of using them both properly and improperly, how to properly store and dispose of them, refocus on function. What can't they do? Not how bad is their pain. Use a summary checklist when prescribing and keep up with the guidelines. We're getting near the end. Remember how I said at the beginning of the podcast, this is the bad news? Well, here's the good news. Most of these overdoses are from prescription drugs. That's not bad news, that's good news. We, the doctors, prescribe these drugs. We, 
can positively affect the outcomes in our patients and maybe stem the tide of this epidemic to a certain extent. It's in our power. We need to sit down, talk about and answer for ourselves the questions like who gets the opioids, when, why, and how much. The overwhelming evidence is that most people who get them don't even need them. One recent British Journal of Medicine study estimated that 14 to 22 percent of pregnant women received an opioid prescription. Why? It's our prescribing practices that are doing a lot of this, which means we have the ability and the duty to turn the tide of the epidemic and bring this into control. Let's look at the guidelines. Let's choose our practices in advance in partnership with our departments. And let's talk to our patients. Let's explain to them how low doses of meds work just as well as high doses for chronic pain. Let's explain how chasing pain with meds only makes things worse. Let's keep an eye out for red flags like lost or stolen scripts. Let's work together to help control this epidemic. And let's hope that someday we have a new class of drugs to work with that's abuse-free, or at least abuse deterrent. The FDA is currently sponsoring a search for abuse deterrent opioids, which would be totally awesome. And we wish them a lot of luck. That is the end of part two of Prescription Opioid Overdose on AM Basic. I thank you so much for joining me. I thank Steve Carroll for this opportunity to do this third podcast on his wonderful podcast. I thank Erica Garcia again for her guidance and mentorship. And I thank all of you for doing your jobs, for sticking with it. What you do matters. This has been Shana Gifford, live from Simulated Mars, 11 months into a 12-month space simulation, the longest in NASA's history, where I don't even have any opioids in my medical bay. Take care. Hi, everyone. This is Steve, just cutting back in to thank Dr. Gifford for that wonderful review. This is a very important and timely topic, so I'm glad she offered to do this podcast for us. Real quick, I just want to add two things to this great podcast. First, let me tell you what my standard opioid prescription practice is. First, I never refill any methadone, fentanyl, or anything stronger than oxycodone in the ED. You can make a case-by-case exceptions here for cancer patients and other very rare situations but I think fentanyl and methadone refills should be a hard stop. I will also not refill chronic prescriptions for extended or immediate release opioids written by another provider with very rare exceptions, mostly cancer patients. My two opioid options in the ED come down to hydrocodone and oxycodone. In the U.S., the most common form of hydrocodone and oxycodone are both combined with acetaminophen, a.k.a. Tylenol. The most common brand name of hydrocodone and acetaminophen is Norco, Vicodin, or Lortab. These start at 5 mg of hydrocodone with 325 mg of acetaminophen per pill. The most common brand name of oxycodone is Percocet, and that is supplied with 5 mg of oxycodone and 325 mg of acetaminophen. My default is to start with hydrocodone acetaminophen, aka Norco, with Percocet reserved for those patients who have failed Norco in the past or with their current illness. In general, hydrocodone gives you less euphoria than oxycodone. Here's what I tell my patients whenever I prescribe them an opioid. I am prescribing you a strong pain medication called Norco, or Percocet respectively. This medication can make you sleepy, so don't drive or drink alcohol while you're taking it, because it can be very harmful if you do. This medication also has Tylenol in it, so don't mix it with anything else that has Tylenol in it. Some people are having problems with these medications by becoming addicted to them. To avoid this, I want you to only take this medication when your pain is so bad that you cannot function. 
This may not take away all of your pain. It will take just the edge off so you can function. I want you to take it for as short of an amount of time as possible. If you only need this pain medication for two or three days and you have leftover pills, I want you to throw out those leftover pills in the trash. Don't save them for another time and don't give them to anyone else. Please keep them locked up and away from the reach of children, teens, or anyone else who has issues with addiction. After that speech, I documented the chart that I gave sedation and opioid warnings. I then write a prescription for no more than 15 tablets of either hydrocodone or oxycodone with the instruction to take one every six hours as needed for pain. My default dose is 5 milligrams of either medication. I will make very rare exceptions to a max of 30 pills for patients with long bone fractures who may need more pills in order to get to their appointment, but if 20 or 25 will do, I will write for that. I will also either prescribe or tell the patient to take a stool softener or laxative and increase their water intake while taking these medications and to consider supplemental fiber as well. Let me take a moment and mention our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. They help support this podcast and you should check out all of their great materials online. Their review articles are really well written and something I've been using since my days as a resident. There's also LLSA reviews for attendings as well. Remember, EM residents can get free access by following the link at the EM Basic website and attendings can get a discount on their paid services that provide CME. So go to embasic.org and check it out. That's all for now. Our next episode will be next week when we'll review hypothermia just in time for the second half of the winter season, because winter is here. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off.